This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Joan Didion died December 23rd. She was 87. Of course, she became famous because of her groundbreaking essay collections Slouching Towards Bethlehem, published in 68, and The White Album in 1979, personal writing mostly about California. Later, she turned to political reporting, writing about the Civil War in El Salvador and Cuban emigre culture in Miami. They were published in two terrific books, Salvador and Miami. I spoke with her in October 2003 at KPFK in Los Angeles when her book about rethinking her family history in California, titled Where I Was From, had just been published. I opened by asking her to read from the end of the book. My father died in December of 1992. A few months later, in March, I happened to drive my mother from Monterey to Berkeley, where we, where we were, were to spend a few nights at the Claremont Hotel, and I was to speak at a University of California Charter Day ceremony. Are we on the right road, my mother had asked again and again as we drove up 101. I had repeatedly assured her that we were, at last pointing out an overhead sign, 101 North. Then where did it all go, she had asked. She meant, where did Gilroy go? Where was the Milius Hotel? Where could my father eat short ribs now? She meant, where did San Juan Batista go? Why was it no longer so sweetly remote as it had been on the day of my wedding there in 1964? She meant, where had San Benito and Santa Clara counties gone as she remembered them? The coastal hills north of Salinas, the cattle grazing, the familiar open vista that had been relentless, relentlessly replaced during the year, two years, three, the, bl- the blink of the eye, during which she had been caring for my father, by hill, by mile after mile of pastel subdivisions and labyrinthine exits and entrances to freeways that had not previously existed. For some miles she was silent. California had become, she said then, all San Jose. Joan Didion, reading from her new book, Where I Was From. Uh, Joan Didion, you grew up in, in Sacramento, and, and in this book you, you express a sense of loss that's, that's similar to your mother's, in your case, the loss of the old Sacramento, but, but it's more complicated for you than it was for your mother. It's more complicated because what I lost was, I, th- I thought what I had lost was, 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 was old Sacramento. What I lost was was my was an idea that of an old Sacramento that that really didn't didn't ever exist. So I lost an enchantment. You know, I mean, I lost a sense of being. I had been, in a sense, hypnotized by, by by stories. <laughs> the stories that you tell in this book um, included the wonderful picture of yourself as an eighth grader. You knew you were a fifth-generation Californian. You lived in Sacramento, and you gave the eighth-grade graduation speech, which somehow you were able to to find. And oh, you and know how I found how it. How did you find After it? After my mother died, I just brought back. I, I put all of her boxes of pictures and letters and stuff that in in a box and sent it to my apartment in New York. And when I finally started going through it, there it was. There, there was this hand, hand handwritten in pencil on lined paper. Little, little speech, <laughs> and and tell us what the speech was was like, and how you uh, how you described the settlement of California as an eighth grader. It was it was it was it was a 
triumphalist uh, approach to the settlement. I mean, to the settlement. It was. It was. We had uh, I, the lines. I remember. Are uh, uh, we? We had a water problem. We had a water problem. So we built the greatest dams the world has ever known. <laughs> we had. Uh, we had this, we had that, so we. It was all us, that we had done all of this. It, total, I was totally blind to the fact that much of it had been, virtually all of it had been subsidized by the federal government because we were anti, we were anti the federal government in California. We were anti, anti the rest of the country in a way. I mean, and, and part of the, the story that, uh, that you repeated in your eighth grade graduation speech with the the story of the the settlement of California of the the route over the mountains, right? Which 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 is the, the basically the core. I mean, it's the origin myth of of California. Um, the idea that everybody had, everybody who bought into this, the idea was that you had go- undergone this this tremendously difficult. Uh, crossing. Uh, it, it had aspects of quest, uh, and you, you, you had arrived. Once, once you had made it, once you had arrived in the Sacramento Valley, you were redeemed. And it was nobody ever asked. What, I mean, nobody ever took the next step and asked what you had been been redeemed for. Uh, the, the very fact of having made it um, was was somehow seen as redemptive. And the people who, who, who did make it were, to quote your eighth grade graduation speech, the adventurous, the restless, yes, and, and the daring. And the daring. They were not, they, were, they came west for, for adventure and money, I think, was, was, was one of my <laughs> insights. <laughs> so uh, the target of your, your scrutiny in, in this book is what you call the preferred self-image of most Californians. And you emphasized that it was reliance on federal money rather than self-reliance that was so so crucial and and so easily uh, forgotten. But the book as a whole is not really an economic analysis or a political economy of California. It, it's really a book about how you stopped believing in, in the yes, old California. that's right. There were certain points that came to me quite late. Uh, I mean, I, I was not a quick study on this. For example, in the 1980s, I finally grasped that California was not deeply committed to maintaining its its education system. Um, that it, basically, it was not deeply committed to creating a future for however many people it was it was going to be. Uh, which had the investment in the future aspect had been a was 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 a big part of the. Of, of 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 California's story about itself, and it had actually been borne out in the inve- in the investment in the university, uh, which had paid back handsomely with the amount of basic research that was then made available to business. It had worked, and yet there there was now this this tendency to think it was unnecessary. Yeah, you talk about um, Joan Irvine Smith, a person important to me since I teach history at UC Irvine. Tell our listeners about Joan Irvine Smith and why she's a, a significant figure in your, your story. This, this was a woman who had gone against the wishes of the rest of her family and had, had, had managed to, to prevail in, in a very acrimonious family situation to intensively develop 
their part of Orange County. And, and how, how much was their part of Orange I County? I think it was 88,000 acres. By the time she was 21, the, the, the board that had preceded her, her uncles, uh, had been kind of selling off things piece by piece as they needed money. And she thought this was the wrong way to go, that it had to be developed as a piece, and it had to be developed with, with to ma- they had to maintain an interest in it. And to make this work, she offered land to the University of California because she was foresighted enough to know that that, that a University of California campus brings uh, all kinds of research, basic research around it. Uh, and she created this this whole, she created Orange County as we know it today. In the 90s, it came to my attention, she had this, she'd built this little museum in um, Irvine where she hung her collection of California Impressionists. And I was reading a piece about her in Art in California in which she said, astonishingly, I love to look at those paintings because in them I can still see California, I can still see California as it was. Well, this is this is a woman who had famously made a decision to not to not see it as it was <laughs> to end to yeah. end Southern Orange County yeah. as it was. Actually, this raised a lot of questions in my mind that I still haven't quite been able to answer. The basic one being, all of us want to see California as it was, right? But if we could still see California as it was, how many of us could afford to see it? Not thirty-five million. I mean, that, that's. That's the basic conundrum here. We're speaking with Joan Didion about her new book, Where I Was From. I've seen the picture of the groundbreaking of the Irvine campus. It's Joan Irvine Smith, Clark Kerr, and President Johnson. (laughs) Those were the days. Yes. You know, there's a lot of uh, of this kind of uh, nostalgia also for the old University of California before there was affirmative action, before there were uh, people of color clamoring to get in. You went to the old uh, Berkeley. You were actually a sorority member, I believe. For a, for a couple of years, a, I a was. A tri-delt, yes, am, I, yeah. am I right? I, mo- I moved out after a year and a half. And, and you were a Republican in those I days? I was, yeah. Uh, what was it? Re- what was it like? <laughs> what was it like being a Republican sorority girl? Let's say at Berkeley in the uh, olden days. It was. Uh, I kind of slid slid away from that, um, from 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 the sorority girl part of it. Uh, but I certainly stayed a Republican until until after the. Uh, after the Goldwater campaign, because I because I I did vote for Goldwater. Being a Republican was something just something you did like uh, being being a, a, you know it was it was it, it didn't mean a great deal. I think I think most of us had a sense that political action of any kind was futile. All all of that changed dramatically in within the next ten years. But I graduated in 1956. It was cool jazz, you know. <laughs> cool jazz. Joan Didion's new book is Where I Was From. Uh, you wrote in Slouching Towards Bethlehem, here's a quote, The future always looks good in the Golden Land because no one remembers the past. You wrote that in 1968. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's 35 years ago. Do you think that's still true today? Well, we certainly saw it happen this fall, didn't I? I mean, <laughs> uh, with the recall, I mean, it's going to be a really interesting period to see uh, 
theoretically a lot of a lot of this kind of cyclical anger that that hits the electorate in California um, theoretically it got drained off um, but who knows what is your understanding of the the recall and of uh, governor elect Schwarzenegger he certainly didn't let us know during the campaign what who he was. Have you seen any of the Terminator movies? I have not, no, personally seen any just, of the just, Terminator movies. Just <laughs> um, did you see in the paper this morning, He's he, after his trip to Sacramento, he said the people elected me because they want action, action, action. <laughs> we once, John and I once wrote a movie, once we're working on a movie this for... This is John Gregory Dunn, your yeah, husband. It was for an action uh, director and... Uh, he was. We were re, we, we, our job was to rewrite an existing script, and, and so we were sitting with him, and he was he was telling us that he was on he was on the phone, but he kept talking to us simultaneously. And he says, he says the the, the topic at hand was what the script needed. He said, first act more whammies, second act more 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 whammies, third act all whammies. <laughs> And I think that I think I, I, that's that's all I could think of when I when I heard they they elected me because they wanted action action action. In this book, you sort of recover uh, Frank Norris's uh, great neglected book, The Octopus, written at the turn of the century. There's a line in there where somebody says California likes to be fooled. Do you think that applies this year? Yeah, I do. Um, the the line kept running through my mind all through the. The, the 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 astonishing events. Um, and were you surprised by the the passionate hatred of Gray Davis? I certainly was because I don't think he's someone a who inspires passionate hatred. B. It was hard to it was hard to say that that everything that that was wrong with California was was could be could have been remedied by Gray Davis. I, I mean, a lot of what was wrong with California was had to do with with. It's things in the structure that, that that were totally outside his control. There were there were such there were such odd details. I mean, there, this thing about the quote unquote car tax. Yeah, we're all we're all insane about the car tax here. Well, I didn't even know what the car. I, after living here all those years, I had not not a clue what they were talking about until finally, it was explained to me that it was the vehicle registration fee. Well, you know, you send in X dollars for your tags every every year and the the way in which it had been raised this year was it had it brought it back to the same level that it had been at five years ago but suddenly by calling it the car tax it was like the death tax you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it was taking away it was taxing your very car it was tax taking away your mobility your freedom it was taking away what you as a californian deserved um i mean it was it, it was masterly I wanted to uh, ask what you thought about the Kevin Starr essay about you in this uh, this new book, where I was from. Kevin Starr, of course, is more or less the the uh, official or semi-official historian of, of California. He had a piece in the L.A. Times where he talked about the, the what he called the disappointment about California that you express in your book. He said at the end of that piece that really that's uh, an expression of quote. The Anglo-American surrender of dominance to non-Anglo immigrants who now constitute a majority of California's population. And he thought there was still a trace of the, what he called the Goldwater Republican attitude in your book. He said, well, you are, I'm quoting, longing for a better past, 
New immigrants from Mexico and Asia are, quote, struggling to make California work, close quote. I, well, I that's I, what I, what I would, would argue is, 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 is that I'm not actually talking about a past. I'm talking about a future. And I think unless we make an, inve- an investment in the future, uh, those, those immigrants uh, who, 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 are, who are looking, came here looking for a better life are going to find themselves living in a third world country. California as a state has fallen away from its commitment to to the future. That would be the only argument I would. Good. I wonder if we could close by asking you to read uh, one more passage uh, about the history and implicitly the future of California. Yes. The California settlement had tended to attract drifters of loosely entrepreneurial inclination, the hunter-gatherers of the, of the frontier rather than its cultivators, and to revo- revo- reward most fully those who perceived m- most quickly that the richest claim of all lay not in the minefields but in Washington. It was a quartet of Sacramento shopkeepers, Charles Crocker, Leland Stanford, and Collis P. Huntington, and Mark Hopkins, who built the railroad that linked California with the world markets and opened the state to extensive settlement. But it was the citizens of the rest of the country who paid for it through a federal cash subsidy, $16,000 a mile in the valley and $48,000 a mile in the mountains, which were contractually defined as beginning six miles east of Sacramento, plus a federal land grant, 10 or 20 checkerboarded square mile sections for each mile of track laid. Nor did the role of the government stop with the construction of the railroad. The citizens of the rest of the country would also, in time, subsidize the crops the railroad carried, make possible the irrigation of millions of acres of essentially arid land, underwrite the rhythms of planting and not planting, and create, finally, a vast agricultural mechanism in a kind of market vacuum, quite remote from the normal necessity for measuring supply against demand and cost against return. As recently as 1993, 82,000 acres in California were still planted in alfalfa, a low-value crop requiring more water than was used in the households of all 30 million Californians. Almost a million and a half acres were planted in cotton, the state's second-largest consumer of water, a crop subsidized directly by the federal government. 400,000 acres were planted in rice, the cultivation of which involves submerging the fields under six inches of water from mid-April until the August harvest, months during which, in California, no rain falls. The 1.6 million acre-feet of water this required, an acre-foot being roughly 326,000 gallons, was made available, even in drought years, for what amounted to a nominal subsidized price by the California State Water Project and the Central Valley Project, an agency of the federal government, which, through the Commodity Support Program of the Department of Agriculture, also subsidized the crop itself. Ninety percent of this California rice was glutinous medium-grain japonica, a type not popular in the United States but favored in both Japan and Korea, each of which banned the import of California rice. These are the kinds of contradictions on which Californians have tended to founder when they try to think about the place they come from. Joan Didion, in October 2003, she died on December 23rd.
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.